Hello and welcome. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. The resurrection has confirmed and constituted him. He is Lord. He conquered what the Bible calls the last enemy, death. So consider, if you will, the person of Jesus Christ. Just a notable character, or does he warrant the title most often used to describe him, that being Lord? In the Bible, Jesus was referred to as Lord, and nothing could be more true, because that's exactly what he was and is. Jesus spoke with such authority, and his actions confirmed his Lordship. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his series on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Welcome to church. Great to have you here. We have most of our youth and young adults who are away uh, in Melbourne at the uh, Planet Shakers conference. I think there was 9,000 young people at that conference in Melbourne, so I'm sure that they would have been blessed in being there. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that we're here. Just to let you know, since this is the morning of sharing kind of funny anecdotes, that sometimes... <laughs> You know, as a pastor, you, you, you just have to trust God that he has present who needs to be present. There was one time when, uh, a few, quite a few years ago, when uh, we had a guest speaker. Uh, I hadn't heard the guest speaker. And, but we had a guest speaker and the guest speaker came and hardly anyone there. And it's like, oh man, this is not a great impression for our church. But the guest speaker was terrible. So at the end of that night, I was thanking God that hardly anyone was there to hear him. So, um, so at the end of this morning, you might do the same after you hear what I have to say. So you go. But anyway, let's pray. Father, we've come into your house. We've come to give our attention to your face, to seek your face, to worship you. And now, Lord, I don't stand in the authority of this church, in a government, in a denomination, or even in my own opinion or ideas. But, Father, I stand here as a messenger of your word. And I pray, Father, that your word would be heard and that, Father, it would be the authority of your word that is heard from this timid preacher with all meekness from those who hear. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the concluding message in the Lordship of Christ series, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping... All right. Now we've got two preachers happening. We've got Siri happening over here. Whoops, I just said that word and it's brought up someone on my phone. I better. <laughs> and what I want to do is bring, bring this to a, a conclusion by looking at what the Bible itself says. How the Lordship of Christ will culminate when and with eternal consequences revealed. It was a few years ago and I'm mindful that... Um, Dr. Sands is not with us this morning. He had a, a bit of a medical incident. But a good friend of his who is a barrister, whom, and I know John's probably watching this, uh, uh, Graham, who, who came down from Queensland to see me after he had read my, one of my books on uh, understanding the book of Revelation. And 
I thought this is odd. This is odd that someone would fly down from Brisbane just to ask me a question about a book. Now, I've had this happen several times, and, and as I've discovered over the years, Queensland's not the furthest someone's prepared to travel to do this. But when this guy Graham came, uh, he, he introduced himself and, and he said, look, what, what I'm about to ask you, because I read your book, um, and he was a barrister, and so he said, I've gone through it like a, with a legal eye, and he said, you've made a good case. I thought, well, that, that's nice. He said, but I've got, a, I've got some questions. And I, need, I really need the answers. I really need to find out if you actually really believe what you've written. And it, it pertained to what I'm going to be saying this morning in the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. And he said, I really need to know this because I've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and I don't know how much longer I've got to live. And so what you are about to tell me really, really matters. I understand that because I have, as you may have heard me say, I have been at the deathbed of people whom I thought had a great confidence and a conviction that the closing chapters of the Bible were true. And as a result of them being true, we could face our final moments with peace and great confidence that if you are in Christ, you are secure for eternity. So this morning what I have to say to you may not mean as much as it means to Graham or the now four people who have asked me to take their funeral who have not yet died yet because this is a matter of life and death. And no, I'm not talking about fishing, Michael. This is actually life and death. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, it says this, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, which constituted him as Jesus Christ our... Oh, come on. We've had this discussion about... Oh, let's try that again. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is it. Now, this is the resurrection has confirmed and constituted him. He is Lord. He conquered what the Bible calls the last enemy, death. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things for me. We're going to have a look in 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage people to take a pen, take highlighters, put sticky notes in their Bible, do what you can, and I, I suggest you do this with 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 20, and then we're going to be looking at the last three chapters of the Bible itself, most of which I've taken the time to put verse by verse on the screen, but some of it I'm going to have to, for the sake of lunchtime, I'm going to have to skip. So come with me now. We're, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul writing to, obviously, the Corinthians, and there was a problem. There was two problems, actually. One of the problems was that some people were saying there was no resurrection. There would be no life after the grave. And there were some people who were even suggesting that maybe Jesus himself was not raised from the dead. Maybe it was just a myth. And this is pretty amazing. Paul is writing this around about uh, 54 uh, AD, AD 54 or so. This is really early on. And you can think, well, that's... That's about 21 years or so after 
the resurrection of Christ, you could think, well, maybe people's memories sort of fade after 21 years. Hey, I'm now into my 29th year of pastoring this church. I just told you an anecdote from 21 years ago. I remember it. Uh, every time April 30 comes around, I remember. <laughs> I remember where I was in 1996. If you're a Tasmanian, I bet you you, knew, you know where you were April 30, 1996, the day Port Arthur happened. We remember it. We remember that within pretty much every one of us were affected on that day. And that was 1996. That was, that was like 100 years ago. So we remember it clearly. So here's what 1 Corinthians, chapter, not really 100 years ago, that was, I'm trying to get you to laugh sometimes because we're dealing with a, a topic and some of you are going, oh, 100 years ago. No, do, anyway. For in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's already in the early part of the chapter made the case why this is evidentially true. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice how the Bible refers to death. It's not necessarily the end. It's like sleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, if you are in Christ. And there's your two choices. You either stay in Adam or you are in Christ by putting your faith and trust in him. And I hope to encourage you, if you haven't done that, before we're done, for you to do that. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, that is the first of the resurrected from the dead, then at his coming, or in this instance, the context is his return, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24. Then comes the end. Greek word for end is eschaton or eschatos, depending on the way it's used. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. I just want you to ponder that for a moment. And I want, to, I want you to ponder this in the light of two truths. Number one, there is only one being in the universe who is eternal. That is God himself. Only God is eternal. He has no beginning and he will have no end. He has no end. He is the ever-present am, I am. He is eternal. The second word I want you to fathom is in First Timothy chapter 6, where it says that, that Christ in whom alone is immortality. It's, it sounds like eternity. It sounds like eternal. But the word immortality means had necessarily had a beginning, but will never have an end, will always exist. And you might confuse the two words, immortal and eternal, but I hope I've explained the difference. One is never-ending, one is no beginning, no end. So that's the point. Christ alone, because in one sense, as a human, he had a beginning, but he, he is the only possessor of immortality. Now, when it says he will destroy every rule and every authority and every power, he's talking about those rulers, authorities and powers that have risen up against him and his Father and the Holy Spirit. So we are talking about the one that we might call Satan 
also known as the devil. In the book of Revelation, it calls him the ancient serpent. I want you to get what Paul is saying here. The next verse, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is, of course, a picture of what ancient conquerors would do. And then Paul says this, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed, future tense, is death. The day is coming when death itself will be destroyed. No more dying. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, the father is not under subjection to the son, to Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, that is the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. The universe is God's. It's created by God. The ancient church fathers described God as being in everything. And that can sound very confusing because it can sound like Hinduism, but it's not. It means this, because he created everything, everything owes its existence to God. So when you get this, I hope you can begin to see that history, time itself, and I'm going to use this term, the plan, the story, or God's plan of redemption. You know the story that when God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Isha, and when they were, play, they were in the garden and the serpent was manipulated by the evil being, the first being in the universe to sin, who then manipulated a serpent who spoke. That's what we call occultic. And tempted the woman and the woman tempted the man and they both sinned and rebelled against God. And God threatened that the moment you eat of that fruit, you will die. And I'm going to say to you, they died they were possessed with the gift that they had by God's grace at that point of immortality but the moment they sinned they forfeited forfeited it and now they would die and the scripture records that they physically died as well eventually so here's the question what is the end goal of God's plan of redemption because there is a plan. There is, history and time is moving somewhere. The entire progress of the Bible is a story that has unique to religious books. It has a beginning and you get to the last book and it has an end. And the middle is a part of the same story. History and time is moving in a direction. So here's some questions that we're going to deal with, hopefully, as we look at how the Lordship of Christ will culminate. In other words, where's it going? How's it going to get there? And what's it going to look like? So here's some questions we're going to ask and hopefully answer. What happens to the redeemed, those who have given their life to Christ? They are now, as Paul says, in Christ rather than remaining in Adam. What happens to the redeemed after they die? Another question. 
I know this is a question heavy on many of our hearts because we grieve over our loved ones who've not repented, not given their lives over to Christ. But what happens to the unrepentant after they die? What happens to them? Here's a question that we might tackle. Can the unrepentant repent after they die? Here's another question. Can the devil be redeemed? Amanda said before, and we, I think we kind of sung it in one of our songs about heaven being greater. But, but here's a question. Will heaven be the Christian's eternal home? Now, there are songs that say things like this. Earth is not my home. I'm not going to sing it like Dave did. Earth is not our home. We are strangers wandering through. We are looking for our home in heaven. I'm going to ask the question, where did that come from? Where do we get that idea from? Next question we're going to tackle, if we go to heaven when we die, why do we need to be resurrected? I mean, if we're already there, what's the problem? So these are some of the questions we're going to deal with, I hope. In order to help us to frame this, I want to have a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which if you are inclined at all to think that Buddhism has any merit at all, this verse alone should cause you to rethink. This is Hebrews 9, 27 and verse 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die, not over and over and over, but to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, that is, he will return, not to deal with sin, because that's already been dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is why in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, we who are saved are looking forward to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the last days, in which, verse 4 of 2 Peter 1, we will become partakers of the divine nature. We talked about this earlier in the week, Denise. So here we have the Bible's roadmap for life. We will all die, presumably, we will all die, and after that, there will be some kind of judgment. And the Bible speaks of death as the spirit, or I'm going to use the interchangeable word, the, the same interchangeable word that the Bible itself uses, and that's the word soul. The Bible speaks of physical death when a soul is separated from the body. Where are you getting that from, Andrew? Well, I'm getting it from James chapter 2 and verse 26 where James has made this point, for as the body apart from the spirit or soul is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And you probably focus on the faith where that works is dead, but look at the first part of that sentence. The first part of that sentence says, yes, you, you need a living faith. In other words, you can't just say, yes, I have faith in Christ, I've put my faith in Christ, and then live like a complete pagan. You're not demonstrating that you actually have done what you said you've done because if you have really given your life to Christ you belong to him 
He's Lord of your life. You are his, I'm going to use a strong word now, his, his doulos, which is the Greek word translated into English as anyone know? Slave. You become a slave of Christ. Your life is not your own if you have put your faith in Christ and you are in Christ. The Bible also teaches that our response to Christ's lordship in this life determines our eternal destiny. In other words, we see in Philippians chapter 2, Paul saying this, Philippians, when you're reading Philippians chapter 1, he's under Praetorian guard. This is not good. Like if, you, if you've got long-term prospects for your life, being under Praetorian guard is not a good place to be. And we know that Paul will be taken by Praetorian guard within a few, relatively few months of writing Philippians. He will be brought before Caesar Nero and Caesar Nero will order him to be beheaded. And so Paul says this in speaking of Jesus Christ as Lord, which was kind of the crime against Caesar to say that someone else was Lord. Paul says this, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. And confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, you will either bow the knee willingly or you will bow the knee because you know it's true and you rejected it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we have this this thing that your decisions that you make in this lifetime determine your eternal destiny and we see that in this incredibly frustrating story of the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus there's two Lazaruses in the Bible and this is one of them but this is in a parable and in Luke chapter 16 verse 19 Jesus tells the story there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day verse 20 and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores. Verse 21, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. I'm going to suggest to you that those angels are what people see when they die because angels are incredibly beings of light. He also died and was buried, verse 23. And in Hades, the Greek word translated here by the ESV translators as a transliteration. In other words, the Greek word is Hades. And they go, we're just going to use that word and make it sound like that in English. And in Hades, being in torment, the rich man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, if 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 you died having having defied God, having rejected his offer of forgiveness, having heard Christ and rejected him, you die, you go to Hades, which the King James translates as hell. And now you're seeing the patriarch Abraham there. What would your request to him be? How about get me out of here? How about can I come over there? But here it seems that after you die, your character, the things that, it, that, that, that cause you to make the everyday decisions that you make in this life are cemented. They're sealed. 
Paul says in uh, uh, was it Second Timothy, physical exercise profits a little, but godliness lasts for eternity. It's good for eternity. And so in other words, the more you surrender to Christ in this life, the more you enjoy Christ as the treasure of your soul and how that informs the decisions you make to the point when you go through the register at Woolworths and the checkout operator is not really on the thinking and she or he gives you too much change and you go, happy days. Or do you go, God, I've given my life to Christ. He is truth. This is not a true transaction. This is wrong. I bought, this is going to sound very highfalutin. This week, I bought chicken feed from pet stock. And it was on a pallet out the front. Great big 20 kilo bags. And it was on sale for $17.99 or something, about that. I go in there, I say to the guy, because I'm not going to carry the thing and then carry it back out. I'm going, okay, I'm going to grab a bag of that bargain, I think that's what it was called. You can, you can tell my standard of, you know, standards generally. They had the word bargain, and I thought, that's, that's the one. And I go into the guy, I said, I want the bargain chicken feed. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he told me it's, it, it's the, the whatever it is, um, 16 thingamajiggy, Thing of, if you have chickens, you know what I'm talking about. Protein, percent protein, right? That, thank you. I just saw bargain. I just think bargain. I don't worry about percentages anyway. And so he told me, yep, 16%. I said, yeah, that's the one. And he charged me $15.99. Or $16, sorry, $16.99. And I, I'm, I'm going, no, I didn't realize until I got out and looked at the receipt. And I'm going, I'm out the store. I'm about to pick up the bag. I go, it's $17.99. He charged me $16.99. And my car's right there, like literally two metres away. And there's no one here. What would you do? I went back in. I stood there with the receipt. I waited with the receipt. I said, excuse me, um, you, you didn't charge me the right amount for this. He's, and what was he thinking? Oh, have I charged you more? No. I said, no, I owe you a dollar. And so he said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And he rung up a dollar, a credit card transaction, a dollar. And I, I paid for it. And I didn't care what he said, what he thought, because I'm living under the fear of the Lord. And, and you might think, oh, that's so pathetic. Yeah, but that's the kind of guy I am. No, hang on, person of integrity. <laughs> so what did this guy call out? Verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. <laughs> Who's he bossing around now? What the heck? Even in Hades. And Abraham said, verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. I love my Catholic brothers and sisters. 
But that does not fit the picture of purgatory. The idea that you can go and have your sins purged in hell, in this intermediary place, nearly hell, not quite heaven, and then be fit for heaven, is not the teaching of the New Testament. It is what's called an accretion. In other words, it, was, it developed in about AD 600, not AD 33. Just process that. The decisions you make in this life, you are stuck with for eternity. Everyone who dies is subject to the first stage of judgment. And that is this. You either go to Hades, and it seems like when you go there, you are still defiant, just like that man was. This is coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. And the thing we're going to see in the culmination of what Christ is talking about is that this is not the end. This is not the end. Jesus actually said there is something that should terrify every human being. While the righteous go to be with Abraham, and that is variously called paradise, and when Christ died, when he conquered, and in his conquering of sin and death, he took those who were in, he was about to take those who were in paradise and take them to be with him in his presence. But for those who would end up in Hades, this is a, even that's not the end, as we'll see in a moment in looking at the book of Revelation. So if you'll bear with me, the Bible actually describes, and this is, this is coming from the writer of Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you are trifling with him, if you are committing idolatry, which says, God can meet me on my terms. That's setting yourself up above God. That's called idolatry. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Mark chapter 9, <clears throat> well, the writer to the Hebrews in, in Hebrews 12, 29, says our God is a consuming fire. Don't trifle with him. We see in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus say this, because he knows what's going to happen to those who are in Hades. He knows what it's going to be like. And how long they will be there. And he said this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled, that is resurrection life, crippled than with two hands to go to hell, the Greek word Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. And verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life lame, than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And then verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now this is what we call hyperbolic language. In other words, Jesus is really wanting to make a point. You do not want to go to hell. People who say, oh, I want to go to hell and be with my mates are deceived and deluded. Jesus says it is the most terrifying place in the universe. I don't care how brave you think you are. You will be terrified beyond comprehension in that place. And you don't need to be. Because the offer 
from Jesus Christ is seen when the thief beside him on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized. He wasn't. He he hadn't done church membership course. He hadn't done Alpha. All he did was come to Christ and repent and ask for forgiveness. And Christ redeemed him. Man, 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 man. The Apostle Paul had the same hope that when he died, this is in Philippians, where he could say, I I know that my death could be imminent, but while I'm alive, I can write these epistles to you, and I know that's good for you. I can even visit you while I'm alive, because I know that will bless you. But, oh, I know that if I die... I will go to be with the Lord directly, immediately, immediately into his presence. No purgatory. There is no such thing. I'll be in his presence. And Paul says, and that would be better. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart And be with Christ, for that is far better. Each of these Sunday nights, we're hoping to show a movie that talks about those who've had what we call near-death experiences. Tonight, I know John Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven. Well, I'll pull you on him. How about imagining there is? And tonight, we're going to watch the movie, I Can Only Imagine. I want to talk about the eschaton, that word in Corinthians, the eschatos, eschaton, the end it means. And to do that, I'm going to fly through the last three chapters of the whole Bible as we look at how the Lordship of Christ is going to culminate. 1 Corinthians 15 has given us a foretaste. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you will notice that there's no such reference to anything resembling a rapture. No Christian had ever heard of the rapture for 18 centuries after the first century. Not until 1835 did someone get the idea, a lady by the name of Margaret in Scotland, and we know what the Scottish are like. Norman and she had a fanciful idea of this thing called the rapture and no one had ever heard of it the reformers never heard of it the ancient creeds did not speak of a rapture the book of revelation doesn't know anything about it but what it does know is this that there will be a resurrection and prior to that something will happen and listen to what the angel did he sees the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that the term thousand in book Revelation is full of what's called apocalyptic language, which means it's symbols to tell you something beyond the symbol. And a thousand means not meant to be counted. When it says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, how many hills does he own cattle on? All of them, not meant to count it. When it says he shall rule and reign for a thousand years, 
he shall rule and reign. So you got the idea, this is apocalyptic language. And he threw him, that is the devil, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Why? Because he's got a plan. And the plan is this. At a time appointed by God, by him, he is going to release the devil to his doom. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And I'm suggesting to you, this is an honour to the Apostle Paul, who had just been beheaded some months before this was written. And the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, a mark is a mark of allegiance and ownership, or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, because at the end of the thousand years, the end shall come, where everything will be put right. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says, We who were dead in trespasses and sins have now been made alive in Christ. And that's the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And if you are a Hebrew scholar, you will know Gog and Magog happens. It's recorded in, it's referred to as a, pro a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, uh, 37, 38, 39. And it happens during the time of Queen Esther. When Esther asked King Ahasuerus, let us have an edict to take up arms against this other edict that Haman had to kill us and eradicate us. That was the forces of Gog and Magog. And if you know the story of Esther, that plan that was meant to bring about the destruction and the annihilation of God's people ended up being God's deliverance of God's people. So when the writer tells us, remember Gog and Magog, he's saying, remember, there was a time when it looked like we were going to be wiped out and the forces of evil come from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain. And if you know the book of Revelation, it describes the Jerusalem that rejected Christ in chapter 11 as Sodom, Egypt, Babylon. Places, names of cities and places of utter rebellion and defiance against God. And now this city is the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and that's his bride, the church. And fire came down from heaven and consumed in God's judgment. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false, false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
And Jesus said in the Gospel of John, All judgment has been given to me by my Father. And the books were opened. We read in Scripture, we read in the Psalms that he, he records our prayers and bottles them like tears in a bottle. The book of prayer will be opened. The book of deeds will be opened. Matthew 12, 36, every word that comes out of your mouth is recorded by an angel. The book of our words will be opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And death itself will come to an end. If this doesn't cause you to go, oh man, there are people that I love whom I do not want to see. That is their end. If that's your response, thank you. Let's do something about it. If I'm to jump into the, the closing chapters now of the book Revelation itself, we come to chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. And we see it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is what heaven's called now. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, heaven is not even God's eternal home. He's bringing it down to envelop earth. It will be a new heaven and earth. It will be a place where we will never be able to be away from God. The dwelling place of God will be with man. You will know him. You will talk with him. He will be there, right there. And you can go to the far corners of the universe. It's a new heaven and earth. And you will never be able to be away from him. You will behold his face. If that verse is not double underlined in your Bible, come and see me. I'll do it for you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, nor neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And here's what you need to know. As we continue to read through Revelation chapter 21, we see that we will receive a resurrected body. A resurrected body like Christ. We get a glimpse of what that body will be like. We see that Jesus appeared in a room and then disappeared in a room. He was in Jerusalem and then he was in Galilee. Flip, I could use that. That's a resurrected body right there. Immortal, imperishable. And then a cloud came as he was giving the Great Commission and it looked like he went up in the air, but he 
went into that realm, that dimension known as heaven. And that we call that the ascension because it was like a royal ascension to the throne. And this is what you need to know, young ladies. God has created you a woman. This is not a newsflash. This is what I hope, common knowledge. And you, young man, are created to be a man. But here's the thing. In the resurrected state, in the new heaven and earth, you will not just be a new man, a new woman. You will be true woman and true man. That is very good. Michael, you missed out an adjective. I'm nearly done. Bear with me. But I'm not preaching for another month, so I've got to take the most of this opportunity. In your resurrected body in the new heaven and earth, you will become true man or woman, reaching your full potential of who God created you to be. You will not be subject to gravity. Gravity will be subject to you because we will be like God. We will be like God. C.S. Lewis this is a book that was put together after he died and some of these sermons were found by Walter Hooper. And I've got to tell you, when I read this, the pen dropped out of my hand. There's probably dribble mark on the book here as I thought, what the? It's probably the, the bit of skin. Poof. This is what C.S. Lewis said. It is a serious thing to live in a, a society of possible gods and goddesses and he's talking about you, the redeemed. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to, now he's talking about um, probably me, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Because that's what God's going to do to us. He's going to glorify us and make us shine like the sun. And of course, C.S. Lewis reflects, but for those who are not redeemed... If you got a glimpse of what they will be in their anguish or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And all day long, C.S. Lewis said, in some degree, helping, we are helping each other in either of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts and civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. Wowzers. That's an insight from C.S. Lewis. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, we will belong to him. There's a mark of the enemy in the early part of Revelation. There's a mark at the end that says we belong to him and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever 
and ever. In the closing book of the seven books of uh, Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Last Battle. They see Narnia is destroyed and there's Aslan on the other side of a door frame and he summons the children to come through this door frame and they come through the door frame and suddenly the air is clear and clean and not with the burning of ash that they've just escaped from. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, C.S. Lewis writes, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, those who encountered Jesus of Nazareth met someone who knew everything about them. And those who meet him now experience the same thing. The King of the Universe knows you and loves you. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.